Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Cool Time Life, being released Monday, March 20th, 2017. How can you make things go your way? We would all like that, of course, but why does it seem so hard? The answer is twofold. First, you have to know how to set the stage. And second, the other people involved, and there are always other people involved, have to want to play along. In other words, they have to want to do what you want them to do. Now, I'm not playing word games here, but the issue is simply one of vision paired with influence. Influence is the art of getting people to change their actions through something far more subtle than brute force. Anyone can do it, but it does require a cool mind. To illustrate this, I have two brief stories for you. The first happened in Florence, Italy, in 1502. An enormous block of marble stood in the yard of the church of the Santa Maria del Fiore. It had once been a magnificent piece of raw stone, but an unskillful sculptor had mistakenly bored a hole through it where there should have been a figure's legs, basically mutilating it. Piero Soderini, who was Florence's mayor at the time, had contemplated trying to save the block by commissioning Leonardo da Vinci to work on it, or maybe some other master, but he had given up, since everyone agreed that the stone had been ruined. So... Despite the money that had been wasted on it so far, it gathered dust in the dark halls of the church. This is where things stood until some Florentine friends of the great Michelangelo decided to write the artist then living in Rome. He alone, they said, could do something with the marble, which was still magnificent material. Michelangelo travelled to Florence. He examined the stone, and he came to the conclusion that he could in fact carve a fine figure from it by adapting the pose to the way that the rock had been mutilated. Soderini argued that this was a waste of time, that nobody could salvage such a disaster, but he finally agreed to let the artist work on it. Michelangelo decided he would depict a young David with sling in hand. Weeks later, as Michelangelo was putting the final touches on the statue, Soderini entered the courtyard. Fancying himself a bit of a connoisseur, he studied the huge work, and he told Michelangelo that while he thought it was magnificent, he thought also that the nose was too big. Michelangelo realized that Soderini was standing in a place right under the giant figure and did not have the proper perspective. So without a word, he gestured for Soderini to follow him up the scaffold. Reaching the face area, he picked up his chisel as well as a bit of marble dust that lay around on the planks. So with Soderini just a few feet below him on the scaffold, Michelangelo started to tap gently with the chisel, letting the bits of dust that he had gathered in his hand fall little by little. He actually did nothing to change the nose, didn't even touch it, but he gave every appearance of working on it. After a few minutes of this charade, he called down, Look at it now! Ah, I like it better, replied Soderini. You have made it come alive. Now, in this story, Michelangelo sought to change the mind of his client, not through confrontation, but by using his understanding of the mayor's ego to arrive at a satisfactory meeting of priorities. In my opinion, this is influence. This story, by the way, is from my favorite book of all time. It's called The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. It's one of the best books that has ever been written on the subject of human relationships, and you can see more about it on the show notes to this episode. Simply go to steveprentice.com and click on My Podcasts. It is so much easier to make things happen just by pulling people along in the direction that they want to go or that it makes it easy for them to go. It's kind of like the martial art of jujitsu. 
in which defense and ultimately victory are attained not by trying to hit someone with brute force, but by not even by blocking the hit of your opponent, but by moving with the direction of the opponent's blow and actually using his own energy to destabilize him. It's very elegant to go with the momentum of the flow rather than place yourself as a solid target, and highly effective. So here's a second story, and this is one that often gets a laugh during my speeches. And for this one, I owe thanks to Scott Adams, the cartoonist behind Dilbert, as well as the office furnishings company Ideo, because those two parties, Ideo and Scott Adams, teamed up once to design the ultimate cubicle, the perfect workspace. An image of which, by the way, can be also seen on the show notes. Once again, steveprentice.com. Just click on my podcast. One of the many features available in the design of this cubicle, one of the most intriguing was that which I call the Murphy chair. Its premise was quite simple. Rather than having a second chair in the work area of the cubicle, the Murphy chair was actually a panel that would fold down from the cubicle wall to create a seating space in much the same way a Murphy bed folds out of the wall to create a bedroom. From an influence perspective, the most fascinating feature of this Murphy chair was that it was wired to the telephone in the cubicle, so that a few minutes after the seat was deployed, as a guest comes in to sit down, it made the phone ring, thereby prompting the visitor to understand it's time to go. The seat phone connection is a tool of influence, making or reminding a visitor of the need to leave due to a socially acceptable and higher priority situation. Oh, your phone is ringing. I should get going. Technology appeals to an inner set of instinctive priorities and influences people to behave immediately. I find this fascinating because the individual in question still motivates themselves and still is capable of overruling their own sense of self-importance simply due to the presence of a ringing phone. If they can do that with a prop, with a phone in front of them, they can also do that in any other circumstance. And that's the key lesson here. Influence happens best when motivation comes from inside the other person rather than being placed upon them. Now, there are many ways that these lofty concepts can be integrated into daily life to ensure that people behave and cooperate with you to help you achieve your goals. Here are just a few very doable actions. First off, make things tangible wherever possible. Just like Scott Adams' chair-phone combination, tangibility goes a long way in giving people a common vision and an internal motivation to change their ideas and their habits. So start with your calendar. If you want time to be left alone to get work done without interruption, make sure your colleagues or clients can see your calendar. It should have sometimes blocked off as unavailable, of course, but also sometimes intentionally left open. It is much easier to get someone to come back if you give them visible proof of your availability within a reasonable time and steer them towards those spaces. Give them the comfort of the known. If you want to talk to somebody or have a phone call or a meeting, give them an exact time and an exact duration of the event. Let them know that this will not be a vague, never-ending conversation, but will have instead a fixed amount of time. Turn it into a low-risk undertaking with finite borders. This changes the resistance or the hesitation to participate in these actions to commitment and willingness. We remove the fear of the unknown with a tangible understanding of the known. 
Let's say you want people to respond to your requests. Well, in that case, don't overload them. Many people try to send too much information at one time, especially in emails. The simple rule should be a one, two, three approach like this. Number one, include only one message. If you tell somebody more than one idea in an email or a conversation, they will most likely forget all but one of those items, or maybe even delay acting on any of them because it's just too much. The brain cannot handle too many new ideas at one time. Even though it appears on the surface to be more efficient to cram a bunch of ideas into one email message, the opposite is true. If you have different messages to send to people, send them in three separate emails. It may sound contradictory, but the fact is one message at one time gets through to memory far more efficiently. Step two, use bullets wherever possible. Those little black dots are excellent in guiding the eye around a page on email or on a screen of PowerPoint information. The human eye is an amazing device, but it likes to conserve energy and it is drawn to graphic objects much more quickly than to text. This means that your bullet symbols result in less distraction and more immediate reaction by your reader. It gets information to their brains more quickly. Number three, tell your reader three times. Yes, three. Just like your high school teacher might have taught you when preparing a report or an essay, you tell your readers what you're about to say, you tell them, and then you tell them what you just told them. In the context of an email, this means your subject line should completely summarize in 12 words or less what your message is. Ideally, your reader should not have to read the email at all. If the subject line does its job properly, it delivers the entire message. In fact, it's a good idea to go on that assumption. The shorter and clearer, the better. And then at the end of your email, and this goes equally well for meetings, give your people a kick in the pants on the way out the door. It sounds severe, and I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. It sounds severe, but it always has been a principle of human nature that attention spans are short and memory is unreliable. This is doubly true in the age in which social media, texting, and other technologies threaten to take your reader's attention away before you are finished with them. So tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them as a three-fold approach to delivering key information. This podcast is being brought to you by The Bristol Group, which specializes in soft skills training in time management, project management, and business communication skills, as well as understanding Bitcoin and the blockchain, all that craziness. The Bristol Group delivers workshops on-site, online, and through individual private coaching. For more information, check out their website at www.bristol.com. That's B-R-I-S-T-A-L-L.com. And follow them on Twitter at Bristol Group. Remember that in this episode of Cool Time Life, we are here to talk about how to make things go your way. Getting people to read your emails and act upon them quickly goes a long way to achieving your goals in any area of your work and business. But the concepts behind this email go much further into other areas of interaction. But there is something else, something more human than email, and that has to do with your credit rating. Not the financial one that you use to borrow money, but your personal credit rating with other people. If you want things to go your way, you have to think about how people relate to you and how you want them to relate to you. People can either fear you or they can like you. In almost all cases, liking lasts longer and gets much more done. Robert Cialdini is a world-renowned expert in influence. 
In one of his books called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, he identifies six different ways that you can exert influence over someone. These six faces of influence are classic and are worth briefly revisiting at this moment. Number one, reciprocity. You give something to me, I feel obliged to give back. I put out my hand to shake hands and you feel obliged to shake it. Number two, commitment and consistency. Developing and sticking to habits that our people know and have become comfortable with. Politicians, for example, very seldom change their hairstyle or clothing style once in office. They know that people put faith in a consistent and reliable image that must never change, even a little bit, from day to day. Number three in Caldini's faces of influence is social proof. We decide upon the correct actions or opinions based on what others are doing or saying. If we see people wearing a certain fashion, many of us want to wear that fashion. If we ask for a recommendation for a good restaurant, and we believe that you know what you're talking about, then we will believe in you when you name a good place. Number four is authority. We believe in and react to the authority of others. When we know that he or she is the boss or the leader, we respond accordingly. That is a very human, tribal reaction. Number five is scarcity. We act out of the fear that the opportunity may no longer exist in the future. Advertising is full of this. Order now, supplies are limited. Or, these sale prices will not last. It's a fear-inducing concept that you will miss out if you do not act right away. But finally, in these faces of influence, there is liking. This is my favorite of the six faces, and I think it is the most successful of them all. People just like to work with those who make them feel good. This doesn't mean love, nor does it mean an excessive devotion. But it refers to comfort and a feeling of respect. If I acknowledge your hard work, if I talk to you face to face and genuinely listen to what you have to say, if I make you feel comfortable and respected, you are likely to respond with greater comfort and trust toward me. This again is not something that I wish to use as a tool of manipulation, but the truth is, if I need you to show up on time, or provide me with your part of the project, complete and on time, or if I need you to pay me on time, or if I need you to fill in for me as a colleague, or if I simply want you to read and respond to my messages promptly and prioritize them higher than all the others that you have, the odds are better that you will do this if you like me to some degree, even more so than fearing me. I mentioned in a previous podcast that I believe the concept of leadership really comes down to one word, and that word is acknowledgement. People like to be acknowledged, and they will indeed reciprocate. Now, it could be said that there are many highly successful people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett who made their billions by not necessarily being the nicest person in the room. I have never met these people, so I don't know how nice they may be. They became influential through skill and through then social proof and authority. If you are in the same camp as these people, well, that's great. Use what you have. But most of us will not become the mega giants of industry that Steve and Bill and Warren are. Most of us will carve out a career as part of a machine, not as the owner of that machine. Most people will judge their own success on a combination of elements, including financial security, job satisfaction, family, health, and life balance. If you can invest some of your time in the nurturing of your relationships, invest part of that 80-20 rule that I'm always talking about, you will build a collection of people that not only know you, but who also have positive feelings about you. Feelings that you can capitalize on in an ethical and mutually beneficial way. 
People who like you are the people who will find opportunities for you and who will support and guide you. So, there you have it, our little podcast on how to make things go your way. I have mentioned four things in this podcast, and here I am, now kicking you in the pants on the way out the door, reminding you of what you have just heard. I talked, first of all, about jujitsu and the fact that more can be achieved in your favor by moving with the energy of things that confront you rather than trying to block them. I talked about the power of making things tangible, like calendars, and turning them into tools of negotiation. I talked about keeping messages simple and short and one topic per, whenever possible. And finally, I talked about the power of influence, something that becomes easier as you choose which of the six faces to employ and hopefully settle on the likable one. I hope that you will see that these topics extend well beyond the world of emails and meetings. They can be applied to all aspects of life. They just need that cool, clear head that keeps you aware of your surroundings and of your great capacity to influence the world around you and in turn, your future. That's what the Cool Time Life podcast series is all about. So if you have a comment about the show or a question you would like answered in a future edition, please do let me know. I am very grateful to observe the numbers of people who are now downloading our podcasts as we approach next week our 10th, 10th podcast, my goodness. You can drop me a line through the contact form on my webpage, steveprentice.com. You can follow me on Twitter through my full name, Stephen Prentice. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. And you can even support us on Patreon if you wish. We offer a number of levels, including some really great private coaching ones at the higher levels of support. All the details are there on my podcast link at steveprentice.com. If you do like what you hear, please do subscribe via iTunes or Google, and do consider leaving a review. It is so important for all of us who make podcasts. The theme music for Cool Time Life was obtained through podcastthemes.com, and the show was sponsored by the Bristol Group, providers of time management, project management, and business communications training for our very busy working world. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.